for us, we did not want him to be in the hospital on a ventilator and have to make that decision to turn it off. That's what it came down to for us. We wanted him at home. We wanted him with us. We wanted him comfortable and we didn't want him to die in the hospital. Hello, you're listening to The Rare Life. I'm your host, Madeline Cheney. And as you're probably guessing, at least if you saw the title before hitting play, which I assume most of you did, there is a big fat trigger warning on this episode because today we're discussing the logistics of child loss. And as awful and unthinkable as this topic is, I am really proud of you for breathing it because as one of the guests says later on in the episode, Learning about and preparing for your child's passing is actually very empowering and can help ease some of the fear and dread that you feel, and will also result in doing and planning things now that your future self will thank you for later. This is absolutely an episode that you may want to listen to in 10 or 20 minute increments, so keep that option in mind and show yourself some kindness if processing this episode kind of puts you down and out for a bit because I'm sure you will not be the only one. You've got this. <laughs> My heart aches with and for each and every one of you listening today. It truly does. There is a song that has kind of been my soundtrack of sorts while producing these episodes about child loss, as I mentioned in the anticipatory grief episode. It is a song by Mumford & Sons called Tim Shell, and I actually really wanted to play it in the intro of these episodes because it means that much, but like copyright and things like that, I just couldn't really do that. But would you do me a favor and listen to that song sometime today? And picture me sitting with you and listening to it together. I know it sounds really cheesy, but that's, I don't know, it it really has so much meaning to me. And I think it will be a meaningful experience for you as well. And I'm actually going to read part of the lyrics because it's just so on the nose for this episode. Okay, ready yourself. This is probably, I don't know, I feel like the rest of the episode isn't as heavy as you may think. But anyway, this song is incredible. Okay, he sings... Death is at your doorstep, and it will steal your innocence, but it will not steal your substance. You are not alone in this. You are not alone in this. As brothers, we will stand and will hold your hand. Hold your hand. And you are the mother, the mother of your baby child, the one to whom you gave life. And you have your choices, and these are what make man great his ladder to the stars. It's so much better in the song, you guys. Go listen to it and you'll see what I mean. And again, just picture me sitting there with you, just listening, maybe crying together. Okay. In this episode, we discuss what hospice is and everything you need to know about that service. We talk about what kinds of decisions you will need to make and how to make those and which decisions to make now. And then we talk about the actual dying process and what to expect during that. This whole episode is littered with things that the guests wish they had known, as well as things that they're glad they did know. The topics are inspired by questions submitted by you, and I truly hope it gives you the insight and handholding that you want and you need. A little bit about the guests, and then we'll dive in. This conversation included three guests 
two parents and a pediatric hospice nurse, Gina Tooney, who works at a respite and hospice home for kids called Crescent Cove. It is located in Minnesota and is the third of its kind in the whole United States. Gina is a lover of all flavors of ice cream and of skiing. Tiffany is one of our parents in the conversation. Her six-year-old Carter, who has cerebral palsy, is one of Crescent Cove's patients, which is how we were connected with Gina. Her perspective is unique because Carter was put on hospice as a newborn and has since switched off of it and will likely go back on at some point. Tiffany has a lot of insights on red flags and things to advocate for in end-of-life care. She is a lover of Target, the store, and of kickboxing. And she was even a kickboxing coach, which I kind of was freaking out about because I just started kickboxing classes and they are so fun. (laughs) Kind of obsessed. If you're looking for like an aggressive outlet and maybe to process things like this topic, I highly recommend. And then our third guest is Leah Deason. Leah lost her three-year-old son, Ozzy, to his rare disease a couple of years ago. By no coincidence, she now works as an area manager for a hospice organization, working with primarily adults. She is a lover of the hand cast they made with Ozzy before he passed away, which we'll talk about more in the episode, and of hiking. All right, guys, let's do this. Hi, everyone. I am so appreciative of being able to include each of your perspectives in this really important episode. So I would love to start out with hospice 101 kind of. So like the difference between geriatric hospice and pediatric hospice and palliative care and kind of the basics of that for families who are unsure of the difference between those things. So I can talk a little bit to that. So I would compare it more adult hospice versus pediatric hospice. And typically it's defined by a child's age. So pediatric hospice is anywhere from zero to 21. And then adult hospice would be somewhere in that early 20, mid 20s range to the end of their life. Sometimes kids or young adults that are in that like young 20s frame of life are included in pediatrics just because they have a disease that's pediatric based or like a pediatric cancer. So they're being treated by pediatric doctors, that kind of thing. And the difference, I would say, between adult hospice and pediatric hospice, like nitty gritty, is just for an adult patient who is coming on to hospice, they are given usually six months or less to live. For a pediatric patient, that looks a little different just because at least in Minnesota and I believe most other states, a child that's on hospice can still continue to do life-prolonging care or treatment. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to die in the next six months. So what does that look like as far as how do you even decide that a child is ready to go on hospice, I guess? If you are still doing like preventative, how do you know that that's like the right time to switch over? Can I just chime in here a little bit? Just because I do think I have a really unique experience and perspective and I can speak to that. I think like Gina was saying, a huge difference between pediatric hospice and geriatric hospice 
is just the idea that you can do concurrent services, meaning you can be doing intervention to keep your child living while also at the same time having them be receiving end of life care. And it can be a fluid thing. So there are families who truly, they go from maybe palliative care, which I think there's a misconception that palliative care is synonymous with hospice. It's really not. It's really about quality of life and making decisions that guide quality of life versus hospice is more end of life care. And I've known families that have kind of gone in between both and it's this fluid thing. And so for us, we had a really unique beginning where erroneously, can I say that? It was wrong. It just was wrong. Instead of having a pediatric hospice team, we were sent home with a geriatric hospice team. And keep in mind, at this time, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm not in the medically complex disability parenting world whatsoever. And I had no idea that there was a difference. And so we were not given those options. The geriatric hospice team did not understand that. I do think that the dying process for children can look differently because it can be a little bit more fluid than maybe adults, meaning that they could be on end of life care for a while and things shift. And then you switch back to, you know, intervening and listening to their bodies and keeping them. They're not ready. They're not ready. You know, whereas I think like Gina was saying it typically for adults, it's you have six months to live and then they pass away, if that makes sense. So I think for us, I wish I would have had that knowledge and understanding in the beginning about the difference between, you know, what pediatric hospice really is and what you can do and what geriatric hospice is, because our geriatric hospice nurses came into our home every day and told us, basically, they pointed out the signs of dying in Carter, but they didn't really provide any other information or support. And so when things started shifting with him, we didn't recognize that in time. And it honestly just led to a lot more trauma and heartache than maybe it could have. And that's where I think pediatric hospice care and nurses and experts can really guide families in a way that geriatric hospice teams can't because the dying process with pediatric is more fluid and it's different. I think that's just really important for families to know because I did not understand that. And like you say, like it caused a lot more trauma for your family and a very traumatic experience already. And so I think that that is a very important thing for people to know. Like if they're trying to set you with regular old hospice, like for them to advocate, like, no, we want pediatric. Once we switched to a pediatric hospice team, it was such a different experience. The kind of support that the pediatric hospice nurse was able to provide just the guidance that she gave us with our state laws regarding what we can do, what we can't do. The other hospice nurses had no idea about that. And truly just that emotional support as well. I mean, Gina can speak to this, like, yes, they're a nurse, but like a big part of what that role entails is supporting the families through this process. And it's so different when you have a child versus, you know, I can't speak to an adult hospice experience, but I do think that it's different when you're dealing with a family with little kids and siblings and trying to help support a family through that process. And so that part for me just felt so much better having somebody who's walked with other families, who understands how to support families, like just the support of that was so much different. And the resources that came with a pediatric hospice nurse was a game changer for us. I would also like to add that, you know, when we made the decision with our son, Ozzy, to move from palliative to hospice care, We knew that it would be fluid, like Tiffany said, that we could go back and forth as needed. He was actually on hospice care for eight months, and in the very beginning, 
it was more of, we don't want to do any interventions. We don't want to do any surgeries. We knew we didn't want to put him through anesthesia or things like that. So that was really the determining factor when we moved from palliative to hospice. And in the beginning, it was just all about his comfort and making him comfortable continuing with his seizure medications and everything that we were still doing, but knowing that he was getting worse and accepting that fact and just listening to his body and listening to his cues and letting him guide the process. So I want to reassure families that it doesn't have to be a scary thing when you jump into the hospice world. It just means that you're taking the curative side out of it and just being more aware and present with his or her cues and what they need for comfort. So how would you describe, because I feel like you phrased that really well for families who want more details on like, how do I know when it's the right time to switch over to hospice? Like, was like a moment for you that like you were like, okay, it's time or? I mean, for us, it was because we were told throughout Ozzy's life that he probably would succumb to respiratory issues and respiratory distress or recurrent pneumonia. And that just wasn't the case. The biggest sign for us was that his body was shutting down and he was not able to process food. So that entailed a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort, a lot of neurostorming episodes, increase in seizures. So when you watch your child suffer through that every day and night, and they're not able to rest and get sleep, it becomes a choice of do I want to prolong his life and watch him suffer and let him deal with his pain for maybe a small amount of help or assistance or, you know, continue pursuing surgeries and other treatments? Or is this him telling me I need rest? My body needs rest. Like it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. So that was the defining moment for us was just knowing that he was not going to get better on earth. So that was the big factor for us. I think everything that you said was it was so on point. We had a team of people in the beginning, you know, that were telling us that Carter was not going to survive a single minute. And then minutes turned to hours and hours turned to days. And then all of a sudden we were faced with this choice that you can take your child home on hospice. And what does that mean? That was never an expectation. And so we kind of landed in this world. But like she was saying, like we were listening to his body in the beginning as a mother who was producing milk. It was the most devastating thing for me to have a lactation consultant come in and tell me, deplete your supply, don't feed your baby. Usually you take a child home to help them live. And I was taking my child home to help him die. And what does that look like? And what does that mean? And I think for us, it very much was keeping him comfortable you know, recognizing seizures for us, it shifted. And so my mom instinct was screaming to feed him. I called the doctors, his NICU team, because we didn't get NICU discharge support. We got a funeral director and we got a geriatric hospice team. Like that was what our support looked like. And so I'm thinking, what is going on? Because I'm listening to his body. I'm observing him changing. And that doctor told me, well, you're going to be prolonging his suffering. And so when you said that, that was the key for us is we didn't want our child to suffer. I think any parent who's making these decisions about how to intervene, when to intervene, what to do, I think your child's suffering and pain will really guide you in that way. And for me, watching Carter, I felt like he was suffering by not being fed. You know, my mom instinct was screaming to feed him, but they made me feel like I was this grief-stricken mother who couldn't accept reality. 
And that was really hard. And then the hospice nurse helped me find other professionals who could give me other opinions. And ultimately, I listened to those instincts. I ended up feeding Carter. And obviously, a lot of things happened after that. And we shifted from hospice care at, I think he was seven or eight months old, to palliative care. And so for us, that shift went the other direction. So I just think it's really important for families to understand, like she was saying, like, listen to your child's body and you will see that it's more of a process. Like that was one thing that no one explained to me either. Like I thought that he was just going to like suddenly pass away. And so I lived on eggshells. I thought his body was just going to stop like breathing. I didn't understand that your child's body will tell you what kind of support it needs, that would have been really helpful to know as you're kind of going through this process. And I think that's where the expert and support of a pediatric hospice team can really change that for families. And one like commonality I hear between both your stories too is also the parental instinct. Like it sounds like there's kind of this instinctual, like I want to feed him. Like this is like something I really want and need to do. And for Leah, like where you were, you knew, you were like, it's time. And so I feel like that could be comforting for families who are like, how do I know? How do I know? And maybe part of that is like, listen to his body, but also like, listen to what you're feeling internally, like what you're thinking and and what feels right. One thing I wanted to say as a mom who is now a disability mom and medically complex mom, and sometimes I get frustrated because I think professionals are like, well, you're the mom, you should know. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea. I've never done this before. I know that can be so frustrating, but I feel like in those moments, that biological instinct really does kick in. And I think it's okay to lean into that. Even if professionals or other people might have different opinions, like that instinct is very, very strong, but also giving yourself that permission to not feel that pressure to know everything all the time. Yeah. And I'm not a mother myself, so I can't speak to that instinct necessarily, but unfortunately I've watched a lot of moms go through this. And so what I can speak to is the difference too between like the age of the child as well. So sometimes I've seen parents of like teenagers or young adults who are like, we've done all of these interventions their entire life. How can we start taking these things away? And I think it's my job or our job as a hospice team to really explain, you know, like the pros and cons of all those things, right? Like, why are we doing a shaker vest? That's to get all the fluid out of their lungs, that kind of thing. Are they tolerating it well still? Is it something that they're going to benefit from? That kind of thing. And kind of slowly looking at all those different pieces and pulling away the things that aren't really beneficial to them anymore. Or if you're looking at, this is kind of jumping around a little bit, but when you're entering onto hospice, Leah and Tiffany can probably talk more on this too, but the team will talk to you about a code status change for your child. So a lot of times it's called a pulsed form or a most in some states. So it's physician's orders for life-sustaining treatment. And that is kind of like a checklist of things that you go through with your doctor or whoever is your primary physician. And it just kind of goes through the things that the medical team would do to help your child live. So it starts out with like the big overarching, like compressions, intubation, that kind of thing. And then further down, it goes into, if your child stops eating, can we feed them through a feeding tube? If your child gets an infection, can we treat them with antibiotics? Are you okay with oral antibiotics? Are you okay with IV antibiotics? So there's kind of a lot of those pieces that go into play there. So that's too where if a family has filled out a form like that, and we can see that a child is getting to their end days, 
we can go back to that form and say like, you knew it was best for your child not to put them through another hospitalization or having a bunch of IVs, that kind of thing. So if we withdraw this treatment, that could potentially mean that they develop an infection, we wouldn't treat it. And that can be really, really hard, right? Because you don't want to make your child die of an infection. But I think the other thing that we have to remember is that the child isn't dying from that infection necessarily. They're dying from their genetic condition or their disease. I agree with that. Signing the DNR form for us was very eye-opening and extremely difficult, but you know, there were other interventions that we could have done as far as TPN or some other type of feeding options, but you have to outweigh the risk versus benefit. And for us, putting him through anesthesia and surgery and possible infection risk for TPN and all of the complications that come with us. And we also were doing this during COVID. So it was a whole nother layer of issues that we had to think about. For us, we did not want him to be in the hospital on a ventilator and have to make that decision to turn it off. That's what it came down to for us. We wanted him at home. We wanted him with us. We wanted him comfortable and we didn't want him to die in the hospital. And for us, that's what was most comfortable. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but that's how we made that choice, knowing that he wasn't going to get better. So it's more of like a natural dying process. Right. And it was long. It was eight months. And, you know, that was definitely a blessing and very difficult at the same time. Yeah. And another thing that I sometimes see is a lot of the children that I see pass are kids that have genetic conditions or really rare things that are sometimes degenerative, sometimes not. But overarchingly, we see decline throughout their life, whether that's like very slow decline or as they reach those like teenage young adult years, we see a more rapid decline, that kind of thing. But one thing that I think Leah is talking about too is when your child gets like a respiratory infection or something like that, when they get back to what we would call like their baseline, sometimes they just don't quite get back to where they were before that illness. And if you see that time and time again, that's really, really hard. And then eventually they seem like they're, like Leah was saying, suffering on a day-to-day basis. And that's really, really painful. And so I think that's another time to kind of like look at what are my goals for my child? What does their best day look like? And are they having a lot of good days or are they having mostly bad days? Yes. And that's why I think palliative care is so important because we were able to do palliative care very early on and people are so scared of that. And I get it. It's not something that you want to think about or something that you want to be planning. But we had those conversations so early on and we knew what our goals were. We knew what we wanted and what we didn't want. And they helped us carry out those goals. So it made that transition from palliative care over to hospice care a lot easier because we knew what we wanted and we already had those things in place and they helped guide us through that process. So I think initiating palliative care when you do have a very severe rare disease or medical condition is extremely helpful. I think that was such a good point because of our beginning and because of that's how we started, we actually keep a palliative doctor on our team. So I think people sometimes don't think that you can have a palliative doctor 
on your team until you reach maybe end of life season, so to speak. But I actually find a lot of value in continuing to see our palliative doctor. And sometimes it's just once a year, but we check in and we still have those conversations because like Leo was saying in the beginning, we had a DNR. Now we don't, but that's a conversation that what kind of year did Carter have? How many illnesses? Truly, we talk about how much suffering he endures and are those still our goals? And what kind of decisions do we want to make around how much we intervene? I called her our quarterback. <laughs> I mean, she coordinated everything for me and she was our biggest fan, our biggest cheerleader. And we went to her with everything and she was involved in every conversation that we had. And we're still friends with her today. So <laughs> we love her and trust her. And she was so helpful throughout the entire process. So we were given a palliative care doctor like right at the get-go when Kimball was born. And I hope that everyone listening has one on their team, right? I feel like this audience, you need to have a palliative care doctor or like the nurses in that team to help you. Because really, I mean, like you say, like that is quality of life conversations. And so, of course, that's what we're all looking at. And that's one thing, too, that as you guys are talking about this, I think is like this overarching theme, too, is kind of like the fact that like as parents, our job as any parent is to help our child have the best life or like to be the most comfortable and for parents of just healthy children that looks like signing up for soccer or like you know these different things but for us in this like impossible situation it's also it's deciding how can we help them be the happiest they can be like Tiffany those conversations you have on an ongoing basis like they're ones that no parent should ever have to have but you're fulfilling that parental role in this version of this life exactly it's not something that you, as a parent, you anticipate doing, but I think like you were saying, it, it really does help me make good decisions. And I feel supported in that way. And having people who can guide you is just, it's so important because this life is hard enough. <laughs> you know, those decisions are really, like you said, impossible sometimes, but it makes it feel not as difficult when you have people that can kind of like guide you and there's almost like a flow chart sometimes of like, okay, you know, how do we work through this? And one of the questions someone had about decision-making, they were asking like, if as a parent, if you feel like you're in the driver's seat, so to speak, of the conversations and the choices, or if you ever felt like your child's doctors were like trying to push back against what you wanted to do, did you guys feel like you were really in control? And Gina, you can speak to how you also, from your perspective of how the parent's desires are honored or considered. I always felt in control, honestly, and there were some times where I wish they would have taken that control from me because it was scary to make that call. I think back to when we were reducing his formula volumes and we weren't sure which way we should go. Like, is it time? You know, he was having more pain episodes. So do we reduce his formula volume to make him more comfortable? And I just wanted them to tell me, yes, this is what I've seen in my other patients. This is very similar in the progression of things like you should do it, but they want me to make the decision or wanted us to make that final call. And it is a lot of responsibility, but I do think that they hold your hand through the entire process and they guide you. So you are allowed to make those decisions, but they do give you the input and their advice and they just really hold your hand through the entire process. So I never really felt like I was not in control of things. Right. And that's where the palliative care doctor comes into play too, because she will, or he or she will speak for you and what your wishes are. 
I haven't been a hospice nurse terribly long, but something that I've learned from some of the more senior nurses that I work with is giving parents choices too. So kind of like what you were saying, Leah, if you're really struggling, you don't even know, like, what does it mean to turn off feeds or can we slow it down or do we just reduce the volume? Like, what are my options? Kind of just laying that out for a family too, because sometimes like two choices is so much easier than just like an open-ended question of like, do you want to take away some of your child's nutrition? So I think that's one thing that I've learned from some of the nurses that I've worked with for a long time. And obviously that all comes with experience, but I think if hospice nursing is done well, it's an art form, truly, because every family is so different and their goals are so different. And so I think there's no such thing as over communicating with a family. I think making sure that everybody's on the same page with what a family's goals are. Now, there are sometimes hard conversations, difficult conversations with more families that are more like dysfunctional, I would say. So potentially like divorced parents, or there's maybe like two sets of parents in a child's life, that kind of thing can make it really challenging. I don't think there's really any right answer for that that I've seen, but it just means we have more care conferences and we just like talk about it more. And the nurse really does become more of a mediator and helping families make those decisions. I can chime in because I think my experience was a little different in the beginning with the decisions and the control. And I think that's why I think this episode is really important because I wish I would have had more information because for us, we talked a lot about what quality of life was. And that was our big decision about hospice or intervening. And our definition was joy. Will he experience joy? at a very basic level, but you know, we don't want him to have a life of pain and suffering. And we were told, no, he will not. And so as a parent, what choice do you really have? And so we were only given the choice to remove life support. There was no conversations. This obviously happened at birth. And so that's a little different, but these are experiences that a lot of families have had or will have. And so there was no conversation about, well, if you keep him here, he could have cerebral palsy. This is an HIE injury. It could mean seizures. It could mean a feeding tube. It could mean they didn't give us any type of prognosis except for death. And so it was so painful and you're so traumatized and you're so shocked and grief stricken. Like I had blind trust in my team. And so I held him in my arms as somebody ripped the tubing from his airway and I braced myself to feel his body stop. And that is an experience that. I didn't have to have. And I wish that I would have had more control and more information before that decision was, it felt like it was handed to me. And I wasn't the advocate then that I am now. Honestly, I still have a lot of guilt about it. Like, I can't even believe I let that happen. You know, like, as I'm talking about it out loud, I get so mad at myself. And that's something I have to work through. But I think even in the aftermath, I asked those questions like, can we feed him? No, no, he doesn't have a sucker swallow. It will just be painful for him. He could aspirate, he could choke. And I just said, okay, not understanding that his body could change. I was told that if I fed my child, it will prolong his suffering. And it made me feel like a terrible mom for wanting to feed my child and let him live. 
And I will tell you when we're in this position again, because I know that we will be at some point, I'm going to be a much better mother and decision maker, and I will have more control in that part of it. And I think like it's so good for people to hear the contrast of like, this is how it should be, right? The ideal of what Gina and Leah you're talking about. And then Tiffany were like, if you feel like they're taking the decision making away from you and they're making those judgment calls of what a quality of life looks like or, you know, things like that, like that's a big red flag to push back or to find another team or whatever it may be, especially in something like this. I mean, this is such a big deal, such a big deal. I mean, it's a moment you will never forget. So I think that's like super important to know that you have the right to push back on things like that if you're not feeling respected. And I think one thing too that happened after that. So when he was three months old, we were still very much in hospice. And this is when our pediatric hospice nurse, like after all this had happened, she like helped me find a really good palliative doctor. And that doctor was the first person to say, yes, he has a brain injury. Yes, his life is going to be shorter, but he has a soul and his soul is important. And it's important that that connection as a human, that we help him live if that's what he wants. And it was like, he gave me permission to change the focus of our care. And that was life-changing to hear somebody say that. So finding those people can really make or break how those decisions and how your experience goes. Yeah. And I think Tiffany, you're so right with just how the doctors treated you. I am so sorry that that happened because that is definitely not how it should be. But I think sometimes people in the medical field are scared to also say that they don't know what's going to happen because we like to have all the answers. We like to be the smartest ones in the room. So it's really hard to tell a family too. I've had a lot of moms ask me, you know, like, when is my child going to die? Like, is it going to be today? Is it going to be tomorrow? And sometimes we don't know that answer. And so we just have to say that we can say, you know, this is what I'm seeing. And this is what I'm thinking. But your child is leading the way. And I think sometimes moms have a sense of relief when they hear that too because they're like okay I'm not the only one who doesn't know it's not that they're holding something back from me they're not scared to tell me something that kind of thing so I think just being open and honest of this is what I'm seeing and this is what I'm assessing and this is what I am picturing is going to happen is sometimes helpful for moms and then also I love the word permission that you used because I think sometimes not even just like you said, letting your child live, but also like Leah was talking about making the transition from only palliative care to palliative and hospice. Sometimes moms, I think in their gut know that that's what needs to happen, but they need permission for that because it goes against every single thing as a mom that you want to do for your child, you don't want them to die. Obviously nobody wants their child to die. So I think for someone to say like, have you thought about this? It does give permission to make those decisions. Yeah. Someone was wondering like what you do if your family or friends don't understand it. They think that you're just giving up on your child and how to kind of handle that. And I know that that can vary from family to family. Yeah, I think that's just a personal decision. I think the most important thing is to have the caregivers and parents on the same page, which can often be challenging, but as long as you're on the same page and you set boundaries with outsiders, whether it's family, friends, social media, whatever the situation may be, you are in the driver's seat and you are in control. These are your choices and 
They don't live with you every day. <laughs> they don't see the things that you see. So they're not going to fully comprehend and understand the dying process and what is going on. They might just see a small glimpse of that. So I think as long as you just set those boundaries and stand firm in those, then that could be helpful. Yeah, I really love that. Kind of just an extension of like your advocacy, right? That's one way to advocate for yourself, for your family in that time. And honestly, I was just thinking it would be kind of cool if you have a family member that's like just really not understanding, even if they listen to this episode, I feel like this could be a really big eye opener to all the things that are being considered and like just how all of this works. So, and then someone was also wondering, speaking of decision making, how you decide about organ or body tissue donation and how that works. So we decided pretty early on that we wanted to donate Ozzy's brain. His mutation falls under a group called Jordan's Guardian Angels. And we had a contact with Autism Brain Net to where we coordinated with them to donate his brain. Ozzy, when he was diagnosed, there were, I think, 23 in the entire world with his mutation. And now there are 46. So there's so much research that needs to be done. And there's so much that needs to be understood about his specific disorder, PPP2R1A. And, you know, I just, or we thought it was really important for us to be able to give this researchers an opportunity to study his brain and learn as much as they could to help other families so that they wouldn't potentially have to go through this. And, Although it was a very hard decision, I'm so glad that we did it. And it's a little piece of him and a legacy that he will continue to give to other families that are going through this. So that's what we decided to do. I love that. That's so meaningful. And I can see how that could be both sides of that, like really difficult, but also something that maybe later you're grateful even more so right as time goes on. Like, I'm so glad that we decided to do that. Right. And he's kind of laying the groundwork. He's the only one with his specific variant so far that we know of, and he just happened to be one of the worst on the very severe end of the spectrum. So he has told the researchers a lot in his short life. So it makes me proud to know that he is going to help other families. Yeah. Another question from someone how to prep siblings. And Tiffany, I know that you've had conversations with the other children in your family of Carter's eventual passing and people are wondering how much or how little to include them. So I don't know, Gina, if you also have thoughts of like what you've seen other families do with this. Yeah, it's just something that I continue to navigate. So we have four children. Carter's our second. Maddie was 18 months when we brought Carter home on hospice. And that was a conversation. I mean, she was little, little, but we had a conversation. Do we want to bring Carter home to die in our home? And how is that going to impact his sibling if he dies at home, you know, but ultimately I think the thing that I have really learned, I mean, kids are resilient, obviously families are resilient. So I think as long as you have an open dialogue and create an environment where they feel comfortable feeling what they're feeling, asking questions. And for me, it's just this delicate balance of always being honest and explaining things with facts, but not like so complicated that they're, brain can't comprehend that you know and I think it's interesting because Maddie's now eight and they know his story and they know you know and maybe this is not right I don't know but they know that Carter might die they ask me those questions because I don't know you guys I don't know I don't know he could live a long time he could have only a few years left 
we don't know. And so I just try to say that, but what I always reassure them is Carter's safe right now. He's healthy. We can do this. We know how to take care of him and we love you no matter what. And, you know, I just try and ask them how they're feeling and also creating that support. So one thing my eight-year-old's doing this year, I'm really excited. Well, we, we don't know if she's in Gina. You got to pull some strings for me here, but they have a sibling camp at Crescent Cove. And so it's specifically for siblings that have a child who has a shortened life expectancy and to create that, that support. And I think you've had my friend Melissa on a podcast and she has a son who's in the middle, but she's got some bookend boys as well. And so we try to, you know, just create natural organic relationships and support systems for them too, because I'm his mom and I'm their mom, but I don't know what it's like to have a brother like their brother and living with that. And so I don't know if I'm getting it right. I worry if I'm getting it right, but as much as I possibly can, we just try to be honest and make sure that they have information. Because I think for me, I don't feel good when I don't know an answer. And I think just even hearing, I don't know, at least that's an answer, right? I mean, it's not a good answer sometimes, but they get permission, I guess, to say it's okay that we don't know, but we're going to love him while he's here, you know, and we're going to do our best to support him and give him the best life. I mean, that's really how we approach it. I think that's perfect. And I think it probably is like just an extension, right, of the siblings and their experiences with our children that are disabled and medically complex, right? So whether it's hospitalizations or it's the different disabilities and then end-of-life care, right? I think it's going to be probably a very similar thing as what parents already have going on with those kind of conversations. Okay, so also, like, as far as, like, decision-making and planning, part of that can also include and probably should include memories that we want to make with our children before they pass away. And Leah, I know that you, I mean, I followed your story as you did those things with Ozzy. And I remember thinking like, man, she's doing this right. Like where we were able to make some special memories first before he did pass away. So what kind of advice do you have for families who want to do the same thing? Oh, goodness. In this respect, I'm so glad that we had the time that we did in order to make the memories. So we kind of created not a bucket list, but just things that we wanted to do with him. And like I said, it was during COVID, so it was a little bit challenging. But we took him to the beach for the first time, which was extremely special. It was just the three of us. And that was a really special day. And one of the things that I cherish the most, and I tell this to everyone, is that if my house was burning down, this is the only thing that I would get except for my cats <laughs> are these hand casts that we had made. So we did one of just his hand by itself. And then we each did one of us holding his hand and we found those on Amazon. And that is by far the greatest thing that we did. I cherish them so, so much. And just little things like setting those boundaries with your family and friends. We wanted at the very end to be just us the three of us, when we stopped his feeds for that last week, and we had everyone come visit, everyone come see him, say their goodbyes, which was extremely hard and special in their own way, but we wanted to give everyone the opportunity to come and see him and just have that final moment with him, and then it was just the three of us at the very end. Oh gosh, so many things. You know, one of the other things that I'm really glad that we did was we planned everything out before he passed. I know that kind of sounds crazy, but the last thing I wanted to do was plan a funeral and write a eulogy or go dress shopping and find something to wear. Because let's be honest, you live in sweats and yoga pants for 
years and I, you know, you don't have anything nice to wear. So I went dress shopping, shoe shopping, got my nails done, got a pedicure, planned his funeral, went and picked out his gravesite, like all of those things that you just don't want to do after the fact. We got it out of the way, we planned, we prepared so we could just focus our time on Ozzy at the very end. And that was probably one of the best decisions that we made. Yeah. And I think with all this decision making, like you say, like, I just want to like shout that from the rooftops of like how helpful that would be to make these decisions ahead of time. Because there was also a question too of like, what advice do you have for someone whose child might die suddenly, like from SUDEP or different things like that, where you don't have eight months, you find them passed away, right? Like incredibly traumatic. And I can imagine that these conversations could probably happen with palliative care before the fact and so that you have this plan even if you're not on hospice so that you still make those things happen Um, and maybe that looks like taking your child to the beach or things like that even if you're not like we're on hospice and he's passing away but like I want to make sure we do all these things in case the unthinkable happens and they pass away suddenly. I know this sounds silly but taking pictures and videos or having professional photos made. Yes. You know, when you have a child that's only three when they pass, all you have left are pictures and videos. And I recorded everything that I could. And I took pictures of his hands, a freckle on his face, his eyes, his ears, just recorded him sleeping, watching him breathing, like all of those little things that you wish you could get back and have just one more moment with. And, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you should put your phone down and don't record that stuff and don't share that stuff. But to me, those are cherished memories that I can't get back. And I'm so thankful that I have those moments recorded that will live on forever. So just even little things like that are extremely helpful. I totally agree. I feel like our silver lining is that because we went through this and I have survivor's guilt, like I was talking to Madeline, like, I don't even know if I should be speaking about this. Like my child's still here. But like you were saying, Leah, like we have half his funeral plan. Now, obviously we'll be in a different place and things will change, but we had a playlist that we had made. We did molds of his hands and his feet as well. And even though he's still here, like that was such a traumatic moment and pivotal moment. I mean, it shifted my entire world. And just the gratitude that he's here. Like that's what those molds represent for me now. And we also had professional photos. So one of my good friends is a photographer and she just like came that week. And she has all of these pictures from the NICU. And it was the worst week of my life. But those are my most favorite pictures because I don't remember a lot of them. And I can go back and reflect on all of the things that had happened. And kind of like you were saying, like, because we were told you're going to remove life support July 1st, 3 p.m. Here we go. My parents came and said goodbye. We had like a special day with Maddie and Maddie came and said goodbye. And then when that moment happened, it was just us and we had music and we had, there's an organization called Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep. And it's not just for infant loss. I think it's for child loss also, but that's what they do is they come into the hospital or your home or wherever end of life is and they take photos. And I know that sounds kind of morbid, maybe to some who don't understand, but you're going to want those photos. It's the last ones that you'll have. It's a a beautiful, raw, painful memory, right? You know, I look back at that time. I'm like, how did we do that? Like, I know we're going to have to do this again. Like live in the moment where you think your child is dying and it's going to be the end. And like, how do you find peace? And I look at those photos and we had peace in those moments. 
I don't think I fully appreciated that until I looked at those photos and it's like, we were soaking him up. We were appreciating his presence, you know, and I think anything that you can do to cherish that is really valuable. And like, yeah, we have all the videos. <laughs> and that's honestly why I started social media too, is like all my reels, all my photos, like I want to remember everything, you know, Leo was saying like, we kind of already have our bucket list of life and things that we want to do with him while he is here because he is at risk for tune-up. Every illness, I wonder if it's the illness, you know, we just don't know. And so we try to accomplish some of those things while he is here, you know, and that, that's something that is very present with me always. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think about the end. I don't know if that's okay. Maybe that's wrong, <laughs> but it's true. I think that totally makes sense. And I also like want to point out, like, as I was thinking about all these different things that you can do, like the music and the photographer and just all these like ways to make it more special, I guess. I mean, a person's death is very similar to their birth and we make birth plans. We have birth photographers and like, obviously it's horrendously different than a birth, but at the same time, it is a very, it's a sacred thing, right? And so I think it makes sense to do all these things and maybe to think of it as that way. Like, hey, what were things that I wanted? Like, what was my birth plan? Or, you know, what kind of music, the photographer, all those things I feel like can help preserve that really special, heartbreaking, but like very special moment. I think it also gives you, again, more control and more peace about it to not have to think of it when you're so heartbroken and numb after the passing like you want it to be perfect you want it to be special you want him or her to be honored in the best way possible so to have that plan in place before it happens it'll give you better judgment it'll give you more clarity more peace and you'll be able to focus more on the end of life situation versus oh gosh I've got to plan this so I've got to go to the funeral home I've got to sit with a funeral director for two hours and go through all of this when the last thing I want to do is be there so it was just helpful for us yeah. I'm glad Tiffany brought up music I think music is so important and a lot of hospice teams will have music therapists that can come into your home or wherever your child is at end of life one thing that I have heard from families is sometimes when they hear certain songs that were playing while their child was dying, it will like bring them back to sometimes very, very painful moments. And so being mindful of music you're playing and thoughtful about, is this a song that I want to bring back those memories? Because that is a very beautiful thing that music can do that for us. But also if it's a song you know you're gonna hear every day, is that something that you want to experience every day? I'm just imagining like to stay away from any kind of like hits or like pop music because I can't imagine like going to a restaurant and hearing that song and just being like, this is sacred. This is bringing me back to like things I don't want to think about right now. That's such good advice. I created a Spotify playlist that was called Ozzy and Mama's Playlist and I shared it with our friends and family. So like, especially in the very end, they can listen to it and kind of feel like they were with us. But for me and my faith is very important to me. So it was a lot of scripture lullabies, very soft and peaceful music, a lot of worship music and you are my sunshine and that sort of thing. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's not something that I would really turn on music and hear or hear out in the world. So it was just very special to us. And we buried him at the cemetery. And when I go visit him, I play that playlist for him because it's something that just 
we did every night and did during bath time and that sort of thing. So there are certain songs that I'll go out there and, and listen to that music with him. And it's a special bonding experience that I can still have with him. I love that so much. One thing I also heard people talking about, or this one mom in particular, she cremated her daughter and then you can make a diamond, like you send it into a company and they can make a diamond from the ashes and then made it into a ring. And so she can wear that at all times. And I was like, that is so creative. And just, I think that's so special too, as just another idea of some way to keep your child close and to commemorate them and things to be thinking about, I guess, of like what you might want that to be like. So Gina, I know you have things to share about this and I'm sure that both Leah and Tiffany do too, but in regards to the actual dying process and what that might look like, one parent asked, when you know death is close, how do you go on with the little things in life? A shower, an errand, a walk. How do you leave even just for a short while? Are you scared you'll miss the moment? How do you know it's the moment? I did not leave. I think I've shared more of in a story the other day. I was like, I did not shower. I did not leave. I didn't go for a walk. I didn't want to leave the house. I didn't want to miss anything. I was honestly terrified that he would die when I wasn't there. And that last week was brutal. I mean, it was really hard. We didn't leave. We stayed hunkered down with him. And, you know, I think you have to come to terms with the fact that your child is going to pass when they're going to pass. It's going to be a perfect in whatever way it's going to happen. It's going to happen regardless of what your wishes are. So you just have to kind of come to terms with that. But I think it's okay to want to be there. I think it's okay not to leave. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I know some people need to get out. Some people want to go to the gym. Somebody might want to go to dinner and, and visit with their friends or family. So I think whatever you're feeling is okay. You just have to be cognizant of what your emotions are going to be like after the fact. If something does happen when you're not there, are you going to be okay with that? And as long as you have peace with that and knowing that your heart will be okay, then I think go for it. Do whatever you feel most comfortable with doing. Yeah. I think that's great advice. I just wanted to chime in to answer this a little bit too, because for us, I thought it was going to happen suddenly and then it didn't, but I still thought like any moment his body would just stop, you know? And so initially I didn't want to shower. It was like, we need to eat, but like, I don't want to leave. I can't even think about ordering anything, but you also, for me, it ended up being a marathon. I thought he was going to die like at any moment for weeks, eight weeks to get a second MRI. And then I realized that he's a little bit more stable than what he was. But for eight weeks, I thought at any moment he could die. And I'm telling you, like with my 18 month old at the time, like the sustaining that level of presence was just impossible for me. So like Leah was saying, I kind of got to this point where like, I don't know how to explain it, but we kind of had peace about it. And so first I started off with like, okay, I'm just going to shower. I'm going to shower today. And it was like a, the fastest shower of my life, but I showered and it was okay. You know? And so I kind of started small. And then over time, I just got to this place where I would go blog, you know, I would write his carrying bridge post, you know, and it might take me 30 minutes to do that. But sometimes having that little bit of break was what I needed. And I think it's okay to give yourself permission for that. It was a process for me, but I think I couldn't live on eggshells. You know, and every night to Carter, we would say, okay, see you in the morning or see you in heaven. Like, that's what we did. That was our nightly routine because we didn't know if he was going to be here in the morning. And somehow we just were okay with that. 
And so I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, but I think you'll know kind of what you need in those moments. And I think just finding peace about that. But if you don't want to leave, that's okay. But if you also get to that point where you like, you have to do some things to sustain your presence, then I think that's okay too. I think that's such good advice. I really, really like that. And I think this kind of leads us into the next question of like, what kind of physical changes will be happening to your child's body at the end of life? And I think this is a really difficult one. At least it was for me to think about because it just makes it feel so real. But because I think like for you, Tiffany, because you were so inexperienced and they didn't prepare you and they didn't share, like maybe if you had known like what the very end looks like, you wouldn't have had to be on eggshells for eight weeks, right? Like that's like so unthinkable. Yes. I think the biggest changes for Ozzy were the lack of coloring in his face. I could slowly see that dissipating and his respiratory rate was greatly reduced and he slept all the time. So those were really the three biggest things for us. He slept a lot anyway, just due to his condition and his epilepsy and the medications that he was on. But as it got closer to the end, his seizures became less frequent, which was a blessing and his pain episodes became less frequent and he just slept a lot, very low respiratory rate. And I'll never forget the night that he passed. We knew he was close, but this kind of goes back to the topic before, you know, we needed to sleep. We were so tired. We were exhausted. I think it was the fifth day of him not having any nutrition or water. And we knew he was really close, but we weren't quite sure if he would make it through the night or it would be the next day. But we knew we were in that final window. We slept in the same bed together. And I just remember putting my hand on his chest so I would know that he was breathing. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I knew it was time. And I just picked him up and held him in my arms and we prayed over him and sang to him and played our music together and just told him it was okay and that we loved him. And that was a very special moment for us. It was how it was supposed to be. And he passed at 2.35 in the morning. And it was a beautiful, special moment that I'll never forget. But that last night, the respiratory rate was the biggest indicator for us. Yeah, Thank you for sharing that. I know that's really, really tender. Yeah. And I think one thing that I always try to explain to families is that there's always going to be a change in breathing. We just don't necessarily know what it's going to look like until it happens. So like you said, Leah, some kids will start breathing slower and having more what we call like apneic episodes. So longer periods without breathing. This can even be like a minute between breaths. Sometimes with little babies, it's minutes, plural, which is I know I've seen moms holding their breath because they think, you know, this is the time, this is going to time, and then the child takes another breath. So that's really hard. At the other end, we also see kids that breathe faster, and it almost looks painful to someone who doesn't know what that is, but it isn't painful for the child. It's just their body's way of shutting down. And color, that is something that we look for and it usually starts in hands and feet and kind of works its way up. But one thing that I usually tell parents is that you'll notice their hands and feet and extremities will be cooler usually to the touch. And that is sometimes painful because parents, you know, they want their child to be warm and comfortable and cozy. And I usually tell families that 
the cooling of the extremities actually provides some pain relief. It's like your body's natural mechanism to make you feel more comfortable. And same with shutting down of organs, like your kidneys, things like that. All the toxins that are building up in a body actually gives your brain the sense of euphoria. And so all of those things that our body is naturally doing are things that are helping the child feel better, which are more comfortable, I should say. And so those are the things I like to point out to families because no mom or dad wants to see their child suffering. And so pointing out, I think that's our job as medical or palliative hospice clinicians is to point out that the child is comfortable. And when we notice that they're maybe not comfortable, hey, I'm thinking that they might be more comfortable if we give them a dose of morphine or Ativan. And then pointing out after that kind of kicks in that, hey, it looks like this medication helped. So let's keep that in our back pocket for when we see these symptoms again. Because a lot of times, like we've said a million times, you don't know what you don't know. And so sometimes it's trial and error. Same with like what Leo was saying before with feeding, that kind of thing. I think that's probably one of the first physical changes that I see is feeding intolerance, which for a lot of families they've dealt with for the trajectory of their child's illness or disease. But I think something that can help is like a trial of slowing a feed or stopping a feed and seeing the benefit from that. And if there is benefit, just keep weaning them off of that. And if you start seeing that the child seems hungry or something, you can try to give them more food, but just really like letting the child lead with like their needs or wants. Because if you think about it, a lot of our kids that we see are nonverbal, but the kids that we do see that are verbal, they just naturally aren't hungry because their body is shutting down. So that's what's tricky about a kiddo that has always been tube fed is just kind of like knowing what their cues are for that. And then one other thing that sometimes happens is kids can also spike attempts so they can get really hot, which is sometimes concerning for parents. They think that they maybe have an infection, which is sometimes the case. But a lot of times we talk about in your brain, you have this like natural thermometer. And when you're close to the end of your life, that gets broken and it's just not working properly. And so sometimes we'll see kids that have fevers of 100 and 203. And even if you give them Tylenol or things to try to get their fever to go away, it doesn't work. And it's because it's a neurological thing. It's not an infection. So that's something to, to just kind of be prepared for. They can either be really cold or they can be really hot, but just kind of, like I said before, letting the child lead a journey. And Gina, really quick to follow up that too, is what can parents expect? Like what happens after they pass away? Like logistically, what happens? What can parents advocate for? Yeah. So typically if a child has had like a long progression of dying, so not a sudden death, their body is usually already cool and can also sometimes be stiffer already, but usually pretty quickly within a couple hours, their body will become very cold and also become pretty stiff. So typically I would let a family obviously be with the child for 20 to 30 minutes. Then I usually try to come in and check on them and see 
obviously they're not doing well, but I will offer to change their child or if they want to be a part of that process, cleaning them up, getting them to look how they want them to look. And then some of the things that we do are combing their hair, getting them into a nice outfit, and then straightening their body to some extent. So if they're not laying flat, we try to get you know their arms positioned in a nice way, maybe holding a stuffed animal, things like that. So if they do have anyone that's going to come visit them, we want them to look as beautiful as possible. I'm sure every state is different, but we actually had this conversation with our hospice nurse and our palliative team that we asked to take Ozzy to the funeral home ourselves. So that's what we did. After he passed, we spent time with him. Then we called our hospice nurse and she came over. We changed his clothes, brushed his hair. I had planned to bathe him, but it was too hard. He was really thin and it was really hard to see him in that state, but I know other families that have actually bathed and dressed them in whatever they wanted their child to wear, but we both held him. I took pictures and videos and and that sort of thing, and then my husband drove us to the funeral home where we were able to spend more time with him there before we gave him over, and I'm really glad that we did that. Like I said, I'm not sure if it's allowed in every state or what the situation may be, but it was a choice that we wanted. I just, I couldn't imagine having the funeral home pull up to my house and to see him put in the back of whatever, a hearse or van, whatever the situation is and roll away. I just did not want that. So we asked if we could and they said yes. And we, that's what we did. I love that you advocated. And I think that's like a really big takeaway of like, if there's something that you maybe is like not what they normally do, but you want to happen to say something. Yes. Because sometimes that can happen. And we did that. That was part of our planning process as well. And that's why I just keep reiterating how important that is, is to have your wishes known and to be vocal and to share those up front. So you don't have any questions when it comes to the very end, but We told them that's what we wanted and they agreed and we coordinated that way. And like I said, I'm so glad that we did it. Yeah. What you said resonated with me about just like the funeral director. I've been given a gift. We would have done that. We had the funeral director's number. That was the only support that we were given. And that was my biggest fear is how am I going to do that part? Like I, I could not comprehend having a funeral director show up at my home And watching my 18-month-old watch them take their brother away, like, I could not do that. And so, I don't know, maybe it sounds morbid, but we have Crescent Cove, and that's a very rare support. But part of the reason why we utilize a respite home that also specializes in pediatric hospice, it's part of my plan to prepare him for death. Like, I'm creating a support system of nurses and relationships like Gina and all the other staff there because I'm not doing that. I know for us, the right call will be to be at Crescent Cove for the end. And that's what I'm planning. Maybe it won't go that way. I don't know. But I think it's just like so powerfully that you were able to just do what you wanted with your child the way that you wanted to do it. And I think just like giving parents permission. I just I'm so glad that we've been given this gift so I can do it the way that feels right to me. Yeah, I feel like this episode could be so much longer. But just to wrap up, I would love to hear from all three of you 
one last thing that you would want to leave with listeners with these parents who this is unfortunately very relevant to? What is one last piece of encouragement or advice you'd like to leave? Yeah, first of all, I can't imagine what some of these families are going through, even just thinking about potentially having your child die on hospice is so, so hard. But I just want families to know that they're not alone. That would be like the main thing. It's a very lonely place to be, of course, but there are a lot of people out there, unfortunately, who have walked the same path. And then there's a lot of people in your life that love you. So just know that you're not alone in this. Yeah, thank you. Oh gosh, there's so much I would want to say. You know, I think the planning and preparation can be a beautiful process. It doesn't necessarily have to be a scary thing or a sad thing. It can actually bring you more comfort and more peace than you can imagine. So I guess my biggest advice was not to be scared of the process, to reach out to others who have possibly gone through it and just to enlist the help that's provided to you through your palliative team, through your pediatric hospice team, through your friends and family. They will love you and they will be there for you and they will support you in every decision that you have to make and just have that plan in place so you can make the memories, you can make the special moments and you can make it everything that you want it to be and make it as beautiful and memorable as possible in the darkest season of your life. Such good advice. I mean, just a few things, just kind of like Leo was saying, it feels like impossible. Like if you've not been in that situation, you're like, how am I going to do this? I can never do this. Like you can, and you will find peace and joy in those moments. And maybe not, yeah, I will say joy. I was like, maybe that, that doesn't seem right, but you will be able to cherish that last moment and you will find your own way of doing that and honoring your child's life together. And I think the more that you can, you know, utilize resources, like Leah was saying, make a plan. Don't be afraid to ask for support. We're lucky that we have a pediatric hospice and respite home and they do a lot of things and taking advantage of those supports that are provided to you. And then lastly, just lean in into your intuition because if something doesn't feel right to you, just because you've never walked this path before doesn't mean that you don't know what's right for you and your family and your child. So if there is a palliative or a hospice team that is pushing you to do things that don't feel right, you can lean into that and, and say, no, it's okay to ask for a second opinion, a different team, and it's okay to refuse things and never stop advocating, you know, right up until the end. Yeah, that's such good advice. Well, thank you so much, each of you, for contributing to this really, really tough topic, but really important one. I'm just so grateful for the vulnerability in talking about something that is so near and dear to your hearts and helping parents, you know, kind of hold their hand through this process. Thank you. You did it. I am so proud of you. In the show notes, we have links to things that are helpful in making special memories and mementos with your child. Some of them we mentioned in the episode, like the hand cast kit, and others we did not mention, like helpful books. A huge thank you to the loved ones of Brittany Stites, who lovingly sponsored this episode in honor and memory of her son, Logan, who passed away from his rare disease in utero. 
Adele, Alicia, Allison, Ansley, Becky, Blair, Bridget, Caitlin, Claire, Kaki, Ellen, Holly, Jenna, Jesse, Natalie, Sarah, Rachel, and Kristen. You guys are the best kinds of friends. Also, thank you to our devoted producer and parent listener, Alyssa Newtile, our tech specialist, Justin Cheney, yes, my husband, and of course, to the three rock star guests that were willing to teach us and sit with us in this impossible topic. You can find links to connect with each of us in the show notes. Join us next week for an episode all about the many, many ways our children's disabilities and medical needs have impacted our careers and family roles. It's a big one that applies to almost every one of us, and I hope you tune in for some major solidarity and Me Too moments. Don't miss it. See you then.